0: Amen. I'm going to ask you to take the scripture and open to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4. This is the book that we're studying through, Luke's Gospel, and, and we're going to start here in the fourth chapter. Last Sunday, when we got home from the worship service, uh, something happened in my house that had never happened before. My son came up to me and said, Daddy, that was a great sermon. And I kind of, just to be truthful, I, made me feel kind of good. And and then I asked him, oh, yeah, what part did you like? He said that part he talked about, Indiana Jones. (laughs) I said, what else do you remember from the sermon? Nothing. You know, so so, uh, with that in mind, I want to start with an example from Indiana Jones. Um, In Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you remember this scene, uh, Indiana and his... uh, Lady are being chased around uh, uh, Egypt, I believe it is. This is Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and uh, he's running around and finally he's cornered. And this guy in this black mask and comes out with this huge curved samurai sword and just starts going at it, doing all these tricks and so on and so forth. And the music is all about it. Bo- and, and it's this dangerous scene. And then Indiana Jones is just standing there. And then he gets, gets ready to come at him with his sword. And you remember the scene, what does he do? He just reaches into his holster and shoots him. And then Indiana Jones and the uh, Temple of Doom. We're getting them all covered today. There are only three Indiana Jones movies, by the way. You know that, right? The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is like Rocky V. Never happened, right? So so, so on um, um, uh, Temple of Doom, a very similar scene happens, right? He's being chased again, and another guy comes out with a sword and goes all after him and so on and so forth. And you remember the scene? Same thing, reaches into his holster. But this time, you remember what happens? The gun's not there. And he takes off running, and the guy comes with the sword, and then the chase is on. Indiana Jones teaches us, right? A gun always trumps a sword, but a sword always trumps nothing, right? If you're going to be engaged in a fight, it's very important what means of defense and offense you bring with you. And that's particularly applicable to the subject matter at hand this morning when we talk about temptation. When it comes to temptation from the enemy, here's where we are. Either we're constantly being overcome by temptation. Some of us, so to speak, not even in the fight. Number one, you'll never be in the fight until you're born again. Because there is no fight. You're spiritually dead. Do you know what a dead person does in a fight? Nothing, right? They're already defeated. So if you're constantly overcome by temptation, not even aware of temptation, uh, it's not even on your radar screen, that's that's an issue. You have to ask yourself, am I even spiritually speaking alive? Secondly, there are those of us who though we are spiritually born again, we are very consistently defeated by temptation. And the primary reason I want to suggest to you that that's happening is probably waging the battle inappropriately probably bringing physical defenses to spiritual warfare. And I'll tell you this, you'll always be defeated in if, in that regard. If you're trying to overcome temptation by willpower or by self-discipline or by anything like that, if you've been in this boat before, you've said, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going uh, to, to, to fall for that temptation again. And then the cycle just comes back around and all of a sudden you're right back in it. If that's ever happened to you, probably what's going on is you're combating spiritual temptation with physical means. And then thirdly, as we'll see in Jesus here, there is a way to consistently overcome temptation. In Luke chapter 4, it is the temptation of Jesus. Now, the very first statement is going to key us in on the primary means of overcoming temptation. You see what it says there? Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says, In Jesus, does it say, Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. One verse, two references, that he's full of the Holy Spirit. i got a few points to make. Uh, we've been on this kick with all the points starting with a P, so we're just going to keep it up. We'll talk about preparing for temptation, and we'll talk about the pattern of temptation. As we'll see, it's very clear here. The pattern of temptation that occurs for Jesus, very likely the pattern that occurs in your life. And then we'll have a few comments to make post temptation of Jesus. But let's start by saying, by commenting on being prepared for temptation. Now, here's the deal. All of us face temptation, do we not? All of us face temptation on a very regular basis. So uh, uh, it's a wise thing, if you're going to face temptation, to know what it is that you are facing. Uh, Next Sunday is the Super Bowl, biggest game of the year in American sports. Those coaches, if you've not heard this, you'll hear it about a thousand times between now and next week, Our brothers of the two opposing teams. Pretty crazy, isn't it? Two guys grew up in the same house. Now they're coaching two different teams, and those two teams are playing each other in the Super Bowl. Now here's what their, their job is. Their job is to scout the other team. The Baltimore Ravens coaching staff, what they've been doing all week, they've been going over game film, they've been showing tendencies. Here's how we do Here's when the quarterback does this, here's the play. You know what it means to scout the opposition. Well, can I tell you when it comes to the enemy the devil, you are well scouted. The scripture says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's an expert at this. He's been lying and stealing and killing from the beginning. So it's helpful on your part if you do a little bit of scouting yourself. And in order to do that, let's go to 1 John chapter 2. So we're going to come back to Luke 4. but So, so hold, a, hold a marker there, if you will, and go to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to talk in general terms About preparing for temptation, first of all, under that heading, is I want to talk to you about the nature of temptation. This scripture has been very helpful to me in my life. What this scripture will show is broadly speaking, okay, you hear me, broadly speaking, there are three categories of temptation. And now, to, to, to narrow it down a little bit, as we talk about the three categories of temptation, very likely, as we talk about what they are, you'll find in your life, you're very um, uh, open and susceptible to one of the three temptations. Uh, in, in other words, you have a, uh, as the book of Hebrews says, there is a sin that so easily entangles us. So 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So if we just put two thoughts together, contrasting. There's Jesus full of the Holy Spirit in Luke 4, right? And then we get this warning not to love the world. So this love of the world makes you prone and easily falling into temptation. So we've got to check ourselves in this regard. The love of the, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, did you hear the word? All. All that's in the world, and here it come, three categories of temptation. You ready for them? All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Perhaps your translation reads pride in possessions or pride in something else. We'll, we'll talk about what it means in a moment. Is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, here's a warning of why you don't want to fall in love with the world. The world's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he's, he's comparing some things and contrasting loving the world with the love of the Father. He's contrasting in the, these desires with the will of God. So we see these are some things that are at odds. They're not allies. They're in opposition. And he gives you three things. Here they are. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three major categories of temptation now the application for those categories can come in any hundreds of different of ways but let's talk take each one in turn and as we go through them you get your spiritual radar up you get your scouting report out and you by the by the spirit now the scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked all right so you need some holy spirit enlightenment to understand where it is that you're susceptible because where we're susceptible we make justifications for why we're susceptible we don't want to do that We want to be overcoming temptation by the Spirit and by the Word of God. So let's talk about the each in First of all, there is the desires, it says, right? You're reading it with me. The desires of the flesh. That's the first one listed in verse number 16. What are the desires of the flesh? What is the flesh? Oftentimes you'll hear in the Scripture this distinction between flesh and spirit. Romans 8 in particular. He who sets his mind on the flesh uh, uh, sets his mind on death. He whose mind is set on the spirit is life and peace. So the scripture makes a clear distinction, flesh and spirit. So what's the flesh? The flesh is just your natural person, so to speak. is you're, you're the way that you're born. We're all born into the flesh. You have to be born again to be born again into the, to the spirit. So this is all, this, these flesh temptations all have to do with your, with your body. Maybe let's get a little more specific. Sexual temptation is a temptation of the flesh. Lust is a temptation of the flesh. Gluttony is a temptation. Anything that deals with the, with the body, so, so the applications are different, right? Pornography, lust, adultery, those, those sorts of things are desires of the, of the flesh. And when the desires of the flesh get its hooks in the mind, begins to control the mind and what you think of are, are lustful things and fleshly things and so on and so forth. So that's one category of temptation. The next one's what? The desire of the eyes. Now what's the desires of the eyes? If you have your eyes, open them big, Right? The desires of the eyes are all the things that those two eyeballs see. Possessions, stuff, more and more material things. Bigger this, better that, more advanced this. Uh, now it's not 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. Keep it up with all the stuff. You've got to have the latest and greatest, the newest and the best, and so on and so forth. You've just got to have more and more stuff. That's the desires or the lust of the, the eyes. This desire to always have more and more stuff. And it's never, ever, ever, ever quite enough and then this last one the pride in possessions or it says pride of of life what's this temptation the temptation of the pride of life is the desire to be made much of it's the desire that you're the most important person in the room it's the desire to be desired in a way it's the desire to be found attractive, the desire to be found intelligent, the desire of your reputation, that you're the best at this, or you're the best at that, or you're the most attractive, and this is why we have beauty pageants, and this is why we, so we can all come together and, and we begin to rank everybody an order of a scale of 1 to 10, and you want to be the 10. You want to have all the desires, all the eyeballs on you, and you when you walk in a room, your desire is that you'd be um, getting redundant now. We've, we've covered it right. So those are the three broad categories of temptation. By the way, we're going to find in Luke chapter 4, how many temptations does Jesus face in Luke chapter 4? Anybody got a guess? He's going to face three. And we're going to look at it. First temptation, you know what it's going to be? Desire of the flesh. Second temptation, you know what it's going to be? Desire of the eyes. Third temptation, you know what it's going to be? The pride of life. This is the full arsenal, by the way, of the enemy. You saw it in 1 John all that's in the world, and then he makes the distinction. Here's, here's what that includes, these three categories. So first thing, if we're going to be overcoming temptation, is can you identify on the page the one that you're the most susceptible to? Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that if it's desire of the eyes that you don't feel temptation in one of the others, but what happens is for most of us, there's one in particular that that's the target on our hearts, and in our souls. And most of us, if we're honest, it's not going to take a whole lot of time to say, that's the one that is for me. And parenthetically, may I also say real fast, that we tend to be really judgmental over the categories that we don't struggle with. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's real easy for us to criticize and critique the people who deal with the other categories of sin. For example, the person who uh, deals with lust can be really critical over people who are materialistic. And then the materialistic person, he's really really judgmental over the person who seems really arrogant and so on and so forth. That's why Jesus says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't see the plank that's in your own eye? First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then what? Then you can see clearly. Then you can see clearly, because there's something about our fallen nature that we're really perceptive about the sins in the lives of others, but really blind to the sins in our own lives. And what do we need in order to see them? The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And prayerfully, what we've done, the very first thing we've accomplished is, here in 1 John, the Apostle John, writing out for us, here's what you're facing, here's what you're up against. Uh, so, So we see these things all the time. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Go home tonight. Well, actually, don't do this. But if you were to go home tonight and cut on CBS, here's the plot line: desires of the flesh. Switch over to ABC. Guess what the plot line is: the desires of the eyes. You win this game. You get a million dollars, and then you're going to be happy. And then flip on to the other side, and what are you going to see? The pride of life. If you are going to accumulate all these sorts of things, this is the plot lines of every TV show. You can go to any of them, and you can say, "Here's what the plot line is of these three categories." Why? Because that's all the things that are in the world. And by the way. The scripture says it's passing away. It's passing away. Would, would, would you invest in a stock that if you knew tomorrow that company's going to be bankrupt? Or are you going to invest your time, your talents, your abilities, your very life in things that are going to pass away? Well, that's what the scripture says is the nature of temptation. That's his full arsenal. We'll call it the jab, the hook, and the uppercut of the enemy. He's got three things that he comes against you with. So now, we won't belabor that point, but I think it's a very important point that you can find yourself on the target, so to speak. So let's go back to uh, Luke 14. Actually, go, go with me to Genesis chapter, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3 real quick. Just real fast. I want to identify something for you in the scripture. And, and, and so, so Genesis 3 is the textbook on how to not handle temptation, right? This is the fall. Luke chapter 4 will be the textbook on how to handle temptation. And I'm not going to make it out to be some sort of mathematical equation. It's not that way, but there are some things to see here. Genesis 3, the serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now that verb, excuse me, that word crafty, it means deceitful, it means deceptive. It means one who is able to deceive you without you knowing that you're being deceived. You know, the best lies have a little bit of truth in them. And that's how temptation will often come to you. So, so here it, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here's a strategy on the get-go, on the front end, is to make light of, to make fun of, to, uh, to desecrate, if you will, what God has said, to make it seem foolish, to make it seem constrictive, to make it seem restrictive, rather, and constricting. And the, the implication is that God is holding out on you, Eve. Did God actually say that? Isn't that a culture we live in today, by the way? making light of, making the Bible seem like it's outdated and it's foolish and it's nonsense and you need to leave all that stuff behind. Well, where do they get the idea? It goes all the way back to the beginning. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you will die. He's already made fun of God's word. Now look what he says in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So he directly contradicts God's word. For God knows that when you eat of it, your what will be open? Eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what just happened? Do you see? It's a very deceptive temptation. Why? Which of the three categories does the temptation cover? It's the triple crown. It's the triple threat. It's all three. It's a, de- it's a lust of the flesh. It's a lust of the eyes. It looks good it looks it's the pride of life you you eat it you'll be like God so do you see this original temptation the the whole uh, arsenal of the enemy is laid on Adam and Eve and the Bible says Eve took it and ate it and then her eyes were open and the fall had occurred so let's go to Luke chapter 4 and then put all these things together I call your attention, by the way, to Luke chapter 3. Luke gives a genealogy. We didn't go by this line by line. But we just looked at Genesis 3, and here's the important thing. The end of the genealogy, he, do, he works at... Backwards, so to speak. He starts with Jesus and goes back to Adam. Matthew in verses, it goes from, Ma- from Adam to, to Jesus. But the important thing is, after Adam, you read through that whole list of names. What you read are names of spiritually dead men After spiritually, from generation to generation to generation. All their descendants, uh, uh, everybody spiritually dead after the fall in Adam until you get to the name there in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. When he began his ministry. So, what's happening when Jesus is walking into temptation is the spiritually alive person is about to face temptation. So, we've talked about the pattern of temptation, and then let's talk about the, excuse me, the preparing for temptation. Let's talk about the pattern of temptation. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So back to this point. Jesus is prepared for temptation because He's full of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to draw your attention real fast down to verse 14 of chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And we'll look at another scripture in a moment. Luke is a great writer, and he's making the point, lest it be lost on us, that Jesus overcomes temptation because He's full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we believe God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the incarnation, the Son of God stepped out of heaven onto earth. And as Paul says in Philippians, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant and became obedient. Obedient even to to death, death on a cross. So Jesus, um, if 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 we can try to make this point, Jesus doesn't overcome the temptation here in Luke 4, just because he's Jesus. He overcomes temptation here in Luke 4 because he's a man full of the Holy Spirit. And Luke makes this point over and over and over again. It's brackets on the temptation itself, right? First one, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. So here's a really, really important question, right, for us. What in the world does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? anybody's curiosity a little bit, perhaps... If if, if you're thinking now, if you're tracking along, I want to overcome temptation. I'm understanding in order to overcome temptation, I've got to be engaged in spiritual means of overcoming it. So let's take just a moment. I know I've had you flipping a little bit, but this is an important matter. What our desire as a church is that we're full of people who are having spiritual victory in their lives, right? Not overcome, not blind, so on and so forth. So go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Look with me in verse 15. All right? If you're there, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as, un, uh, but, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. So you got to be look carefully how you walk. You just don't walk blindly into temptation or blindly into wasted time. And so uh, he says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You ever asked that question? What's God's will? He says, understand what it is. Verse eighteen: Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus, uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's just talk about it for just a few moments. He makes a comparison, and I think it's helpful if we think about it in the way that the scripture teaches. He says there in verse 18, I believe it is, Do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. comma, But be filled with the Spirit. Now, um, there's a few times when it comes to the Scripture that it is helpful to understand that the Bible wasn't originally written in English. It was originally written in the New Testament in, in Greek. And sometimes the Greek has a way of articulating things that don't translate well into English. And this verse actually is one of those places. Because what it literally says, we, it's not translated this way because it's not the way that we talk. It says, do not be drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be being filled with the Spirit. Uh, what, what Paul, rather, is teaching is that being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing thing. An example that I sometimes used, and we don't have it today, but suppose I had a, 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 a bottle of water here, plastic bottle of water, and it's full to the top of the water, but at the bottom of it, it's got a hole in it, so there's some water leaking out. If you want it to stay full, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to keep pouring the water back in, and then it's going to have to go back in, and then it's going to have to be this ongoing thing. That's what the picture is for Paul here, is to be being filled with the Spirit. Now, how do, you, how do you do that? One, it takes a whole lot of humility. It takes a whole lot of humility. Say, uh, remember, pride of life. Here's a, here's a uh, temptation. Is to think, I can just walk around in life, and I don't really need the Lord. Well, one, you've got to say, I need him every hour. Don't you love that song? I need thee. I can't sing, but here, I need thee every hour. Every hour. We could say every moment, I need him. He goes on to give some, some characteristics of those who are spirit-filled, they sing song in their heart, making melody unto the Lord. Even those who do, who, who like me can't sing. But you know what? I, lo- I love to sing about Jesus because of what he's done. And he says they're always thankful. And, and, and always uh, always thankful to the Lord. Giving thanks always and for everything. That's the good and the bad. Not just the good, right? To be filled with the Spirit. Now, uh, and, and then he also says, submitting, or excuse me, um, uh, yes, yeah, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, uh, real quick, a little theology is, Ephesians 1 teaches this, when you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of your future inheritance, of your eternal life. It's what he says in Ephesians 1. Holy Spirit comes to, to live in you. So, so, so it's not an issue if you have the Spirit. The issue is, are you filled with the Spirit? Go back to the flesh and the spirit. One of them is controlling you the way that you think, the way that you live, the way that you decide, the way that you behave, the way that you respond to temptation. Either the flesh or the spirit. And here's the good news of the gospel. Those of us who are born again one day, and we pray it's not too far off in the future, we will be done with the flesh. Now we're being sanctified. We are being sanctified. It's ongoing. But praise God there will come a moment when he returns and we'll be made like Him. Won't that be a glorious moment? You don't struggle with sin anymore. you you've going to permanently put sin to death. Now, in the here and now, here's the issue. Luke 4, how do we respond now to temptation? Let's go back to Luke 4 and see. what a. Let's just see. Here's how we'll approach it. What is a man full of the Holy Spirit? How does he respond to temptation? You ready? That's what, that's what we're going to do. Give us 10 minutes. That's what we'll do. So... I was reading this week, I love history and particularly World War II history, and I was reading the new biography on Winston Churchill and was uh, to the period of June 1940. Nazi Germany has pretty much knocked everybody out in Western Europe. Every, every nation has fallen under, under the Nazi banner, and, and then even England's ally, France, they surrender. And so, so it's just Britain. At that time, the United States of America was still strongly had this policy of isolationism. We just don't want to get involved. It's not our problem. They're way over there. That would change, of course, in the coming years after Pearl Harbor. But in that moment, Nazi Germany reigned over everybody except one little island nation called Britain. And most many of the influential uh, men in the British government said, we just need to go on and make a peace. We just need to kind of come on to terms, and we're not going to be able to defeat them. But at that time, they had a prime minister that I know that you've heard of. I've already mentioned him. It's books about him, so you know where this is going. His name's Winston Churchill. And in late June 1940, when there are all these rumblings about, let's just, let's just call it a day. We don't have the manpower. We don't have the weapons to face that war machine. Here's what Winston Churchill stood up in the House of Commons to say. I can't get his good British accent. It sounds a lot better when he says it, but it's powerful nonetheless. He says, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue the liberation and liberation of the old. Again, what he says is great speech. But they're in the precipice of surrender, saying, We can't overcome this. This guy stands up and says, No, 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 we're gonna fight and we're gonna fight to the end. Here's what I find the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer is he says, We will not quit. We will not surrender. Now look around, believer, most everybody else in the world who does not follow Jesus, who has not bowed the knee, and even some of those who have claimed to follow Christ. When it comes to temptation, they've surrendered, they've quit. They said, we're just going to go along with the scheme, as Ephesians 2 says, the pattern of this world, which is under the dominion of the enemy. But the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, here's what he'll do. He He gets a hold of you and says, we're not quitting. And the new world, by the way, it is going to come, and it is going to liberate the old. And here's Jesus, gives us a picture, here's how you combat temptation, here's how it happens. He says in verse uh, number 2, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during these days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall not, excuse me, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended, what kind of, what kind of temptation? Every temptation. That's what he's got. That's his arsenal. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. He ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. The scripture says Jesus was tempted in every way like as we you know what the book of Hebrews says? What's it saying? He's faced the temptation of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Let's see briefly and quickly how he handled the temptation. What does a Holy Spirit-filled man do? Number one, briefly, you'll see that his interactions with the devil are kept very brief. In fact, you'll see here, the only thing Jesus says to the enemy is to quote Scripture. He doesn't have long conversations he doesn't get back and forth and so on and forth you've heard someone say at times well let me play devil's advocate by the way the devil doesn't need an advocate we need the advocate all right and by the way glory to god the literal translation of holy spirit paraclete advocate right so when someone says let me play devil's advocate what are they saying let's just kind of let's just banter back and forth let's just give a different perspective and so on and so when it comes to temptation here's the perspective i will either be obedient to jesus or I will sin. That's the perspective. You don't have to go on and on in a hypothetical situation, and this, that, or the other. As a matter of fact, look at the word that the devil uses for, each t- for the introduction of each temptation. It's the word what? If. If, if, if. Do you see it? Look at verse uh, 3. The devil said to him, if. Verse 7, if. Verse 9, if. You find your life is wasting away on ifs and wins. While the devil says, if, here's what Jesus says. It is what? Written. It's written. Now, here's how you're going to live your life. Either on the basis of ifs or on the basis of it is written. Let's just see quickly the three temptations. The first is the lust of the flesh. He's hungry, and the devil comes along and says, why don't you just make these stones into bread? I mean, you're the son of God. Just, just do it. Just turn, just turn the stones into bread. He's on a spirit-led fast. He's praying, he's seeking the face of God, and here comes this temptation. Just, just turn something. It's uh, real similar to Esau. Remember him out hunting all day? Just sell your birthright for a pot of stew, right? So something that's momentary and satisfying. You say, who would do that? People do it every day. People do it all the time. This uh, lesser appetite, they seek to satisfy, and they trade in a greater joy, which is knowing the living God. And most of the time, they're blind to what they are, they are, they're doing. It's also a temptation, by the way, to, uh, to doubt the love of God. Has this ever happened to you? Uh, here he is out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's around, nobody to help him. The temptation is to feel sort of abandoned, right? Because God doesn't even care about you. I don't even have anything to eat. The last thing, now listen to me, the last thing that God had said in the scriptures to Jesus, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That happened at his baptism. And then he goes into temptation. And here's what will happen to you in temptation is when temptation begins, you'll be tempted to doubt what God had already said. Then you get there in the wilderness or whatever it is in your life, in your marriage, in your house, in your job. and Is God even there? And here's what happened. You'll start to feel like he's not. And that's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to respond to temptation by how you, F-E-E-L, feel. But here's what you have to learn to do. And here's where the feeling, not the F-E-E-L-I-N-G, but the F-I-L-L-I-N-G. I don't enunciate these words very well. The feeling of the Holy Spirit will overcome the feelings of the flesh. And that's very key if you're going to overcome temptation. Is you have to believe deeper in what God has said than in how you feel because many people will follow that trail of feelings and I'll tell you those are breadcrumbs every feeling is a breadcrumb along the path of destruction you want a better road than that the scripture says Jesus says he who builds his house on a rock the word of God he'll stand now what's the quicksand and one in many ways I think your feelings are quicksand the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can understand it Jesus' responds to that temptation by saying, it is written. Um, Like one of the articles I read, and and Pastor Shane had pointed me to it, uh, about uh, uh, when, when God seems distant. You ever feel like God seems distant? Whenever you feel God seems distant, believe that He's not. Here's why. Not because you feel as if He's near, but because He said that He is near. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. You've got to arm your heart, mind, soul with the Word of God. Memorize it, believe it. I encourage you again to memorize portions of Scripture. And anybody who has a desire for that, shoot me an email, send me a phone call. I'll give you Scripture to, to memorize. In fact, we probably just need to start putting it in the in the bulletin because I want you to notice here, Jesus doesn't have to go look it up. He doesn't face the temptation to say, where's my concordance? They didn't have concordances back then, right? He said, well, I know there's a verse in here somewhere, marked it at some point. I have, here's the Scripture. I have hidden your word in my heart so that what? I might not sin against you what's the psalmist saying i'm going to trust his word it's in my heart when the temptation comes my feelings come i'm going to trust the word um second temptation is the lust of the eyes i'll give you all these kingdoms in a moment here's just a catch if you'll worship me it'll all be yours that's a temptation to doubt god's plan jesus has come for the kingdoms by the way he's come for us He's just not going to do it by bowing down to the enemy. He's going to do it by going to the cross and suffering and dying for the sins of us that whoever would have faith in him would be liberated, as Colossians says, from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then also, I know we're going through these quickly, but for time's sake, the third temptation is to trust God presumptuously, to be like Hophni and Phineas, those wicked boys who said, hey, let's just pull out the cart, let's just pull out the old Ark of the Covenant and we'll go whip the Philistines. And some people, some people do this. Just say, "Well, God's just always going to be good to me because He's just because I, I deserve it," or some sort of foolishness like that. You know where the the Ark of the Covenant wound up? It wound up over at uh, the Philistines' place, and then their then their idols started bowing down to the Ark. And God is always going to be faithful to Himself. That's why the commandment is, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. That commandment means don't go around saying you follow him if you don't follow him. Don't go around saying he's going to do all these things. Jeremiah tried to convince his people in his own day. Just because we've got the temple doesn't mean everything's going to go well as we continue in wickedness. But it's a temptation to trust God presumptuously, to make a show of himself. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, then the angels will come and capture you. I also want you to notice, by the way, that the enemy knows scripture too. Two times Jesus quoted Scripture, so the third time the devil begins to quote Scripture out of context and with false application, which goes on very often in our day as well. But Jesus said, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Conclusion, the enemy has no counter to the Holy Spirit-filled person who knows Scripture, believes Scripture, and obeys Scripture. That's what we're taught here in Luke chapter, chapter 4. Now in conclusion... Even though Jesus did not succumb to any temptation, the Bible says He was without sin, He willingly took on Himself the penalty of temptation. The penalty of sin is death. Jesus did not have to die. In fact, He says that nobody takes my life from me, but what? I lay it down of my own accord. None of us can ever say that we've never given in to temptation. Whether it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, We are overcome by these things. Our hope, our faith, is not that we will never give in to temptation. Our hope is in the one who, though he never once sinned, offered his life a ransom for many, having himself never given in to temptation. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, having been raised to spiritual life by faith in Christ, it is now possible to be victorious over temptation. Now by faith we understand that there is something greater than our physical appetites. There is something greater than bread. There is something greater than lust. There is something greater than the lust of the flesh. So we have now proclaimed we do not live by bread alone. Now, by faith, we also understand that we already possess more riches in Christ Jesus than the world and its wealth and its kingdoms could ever offer. So we don't squander our lives trying to accumulate more and more stuff. Instead, having been satisfied in Christ, we are freed up to give and to sacrifice so that others may have. And now, by faith, we see that Christ, and we understand that He is the one to be honored and worshiped, And not us. We put the pride of life to death for the greater joy of praising the name of the Lord Jesus. We're no longer in Adam, we are now in Christ. Now, one final word post temptation Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and Luke chapter 4, verse 18 are only true because Jesus did not succumb to temptation. So let me read those words to you and then apply it to our lives, the lives of our church and our families. It says, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went about Him went through the whole surrounding country. And then in verse 18, we'll study this next week, Jesus unrolls the scroll of Isaiah at the synagogue, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So just in conclusion, the stakes are spirit-filled ministry or going through hypocritical motions. That's 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 what's at stake when it comes to temptation for our church. For our church, if we're a people full of the Holy Spirit, overcoming temptation, believing that God is better than whatever we could be tempted, believing the devil is a liar and we can put to death all his ifs and build our lives on all the it is written, here's what happens. Here's what happened in the ministry of Jesus. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it's, not, it's just not about us and your life. and It's about the kingdom of God going forth in power in Rocky Mount and in Nash County and in the state of North Carolina and the United States and to the uttermost points of the earth, right? Because if the gospel... Uh, is a fire, then those who are overcome by temptation is just a big bucket of of water. And then there's no more power. Why? Because we're no longer full of the Spirit. Does that make sense? And then we're trying to, not only are we trying to overcome temptation through physical means, we're actually trying to proclaim the kingdom through physical means. And that, my friends, is frustrating, powerless, a dead end. So my encouragement and exhortation to you is now... To the one who has overcome, the one that we have faith in, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I'll go away and I will send him to you. I want to stand together and pray together and have a time of invitation. Just a few application questions. During a time of invitation, just ask you a few things. And my encouragement to you is not just to sit there and just wait for this music to be over so we can leave, but to really pursue God and really grab hold of him. Like we say, you have a little Jacob in you. I won't let go until you've blessed me. Or a woman with the bleeding who reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. That's what we do during a moment of invitation. So if you bow your heads with me, would you just allow the Holy Spirit from the Word of God? Now, this isn't vague or mystic. This is based on the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. Would you just ask Him to make clear to you in your life where you're susceptible? Where you go, the places you go, or the people you're with, or the things that you choose to do that to make you a wide-open target for continual giving in to temptation. Just say, Father, would you make me wise? Would you give me sight where I'm blind? Would you give me a desire to overcome where I'm continually falling short? And then if you don't have the desire, my encouragement to you is, would you pray that he would grant it to you to know his word, To memorize it not for the sake of uh, academics, but so you'd hide his word in your heart that you wouldn't sin, so you don't show up for a sword fight with no sword. The word of God is is the sword. And then also, would you take a moment to understand that if we do not do this, the consequences are spiritless ministry for us. Now, the Holy Spirit will go, the the kingdom will always go forth, but we want to be a people who are joined in what God's doing. Father, would you please please bring clarity to what I've been trying to say this morning? Help more than anything else for it to be the Word of God that goes forth in power and brings clarity and conviction, exhortation and reproving where we need it. Father, I pray for the one who's been over and over again defeated by temptation. Whether it's a lust of the flesh, over and over just lust pouring into the mind that you would know that in Christ we are forgiven and that uh, you will not leave us or forsake us. You do give us the means to overcome temptation in the Lord Jesus and by your spirit. Father, lead our time. Help us to be prayerful. Help us to respond in a way that honors the Lord Jesus. And most of all, can we say thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he never succumbed to temptation, no sin was found in him. He laid his life down for sinners and took the penalty that was ours on himself and has been our justifier, the Lamb of God, our righteousness. May we worship him for who he is in Jesus' name. Amen.